Hello, everyone. Robert Walker here, along with Caleb Pierce, and we are Sheep Things Podcast. Our goal with this podcast is to get down to the basics with industry leaders, associations, breeders, owners, vets, suppliers, and anyone else we can find to hear their stories and firsthand experiences. Hopefully, we will ask the right questions to see what makes them successful, how they got started, and what they see for the future of the sheep industry. We hope to have something new weekly that we can share, so stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates as they are published. Stay tuned as we try to share our learning experience with you all as we dive into the sheep industry together. Okay, guys, welcome back. Uh, We're on season two, episode five of the Sheep Things podcast, and today... Uh, we're continuing on uh, with our conversation with Lynn Farmire, uh, who's the president of the NSIP organization. So uh, just a continuation of more details on traits uh, and how you can apply them to your flock. And uh, hopefully hopefully you can learn something uh, like we do. I mean, we learn something every time. So uh, more detail. This is what a lot of people has been asking us. So sit back and enjoy. So moving on... Um Number of lambs weaned and number of lambs born. Probably just leave that uh, sheet up there, Robert. Um, those are expressed as a percentage, and it's on a per lambing basis. So, um, okay, guys, had a little technical difficulty. Uh, <laughs> I lost my internet connection uh, right as we started, so I'm going to try to fill in a little bit on. Uh, what Lynn was discussing uh, while I was out. So uh, the two traits he was uh, talking about were number of lambs born and number of lambs weaned. Uh, Number of lamb born EBV evaluates proliferacy potential uh, in your flock. Uh, It is expressed as a percentage of the lambs born per ewe lambing. So an example uh, of that would be if you had a U uh, that had a plus 0.10 NLB uh, EBV, then she would be expected to have an average increase uh, of 10% more lambs than the average ewes in your flock. Uh, so the 0.10 is a percentage, so 10%. Uh, so selection on higher NLB or number of lambs born is expected to increase uh, prolificity in your flock uh, and likewise if you're a say a grass-fed operation and you don't want uh, a lot of triplets then you you might want to be closer to an average or or a lower number of lambs born versus um, a higher number um, so anyway that's that's the number of lambs born number of lambs weaned would be the same way uh, it is a percentage number of lambs weaned per lambing so um so same same deal if you have a plus 10 then that then that group that that you would be expected to wean an average of 10 percent more lambs at lambing than your average ewes and their daughters are expected to wean an average of five percent more at lambing uh, based on the pedigree evvs uh, so selection on number of lambs weaned is expected to increase your weaning rate rates within the flock, which is which is very important. So uh, hopefully uh, I stuttered through those enough to give them some justice, and uh, and then my internet picked back up. So we will continue with uh, with some blooper here uh, uh, to give you a little feedback when the internet went out. Uh, we're we're trying to do a YouTube video as well, so uh, all of our faces froze. So. Uh, that that leads us into the next segue. Hey, he's back. Uh, you know, there's just you know, you always heard your mama say, "Careful when you make that face; it might freeze." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have that face. So. Okay, it looks like you're recording again. So. Yeah. Okay, so we can move on. Let me see. I don't think. Really- I don't think we covered fecal egg count. Yeah, we need fecal egg counts. Another one. It's an expensive trait to measure, uh, so not everyone does it. Um, 
it's it's a messy trait to measure because you're pulling fecal samples <laughs> and your wife will not like it if you're using the kitchen table you don't want to use it but um anyway uh you know i send all of my samples off to a lab to get them analyzed i don't count them myself um i think most of these people are counting six an hour um something like that and I, yeah. i've got other things i want to do besides looking at a microscope <laughs> so um so yeah it's 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 time consuming um you have to wait until you get enough of a challenge that you can actually get a decent number of you know eggs and a, and a gram of manure on on average basis and so yeah it's it's a little nuanced um so i have a question on that topic because that's something that i struggle with how do you know you're having a challenge till you got dead lambs you know i've thought about that's a i mean i've struggled with that robert and um mm -hmm. Because if I take samples um, and send them off, it's, you know, that, well, this past year, I won't say, I better not say who did my samples this year. Um, it was a very reputable, <laughs> was a very reputable person, but I probably got some favors about how fast they were done. Um, because they knew my frustration from the last couple of years. And so, but you know, if you send samples off to most of these labs, by the time you get the results back and you decide you need to sample, you've got dead lambs anyway. Right. And I've thought about getting a microscope and just going out like on Sunday afternoons and just picking some samples up off the ground and, you know, do three samples. And even if I'm not real accurate because I don't do it a lot, I'd be accurate enough to know if I need to pull samples up. And, um, but most vets can't count. I mean, uh, honestly, you know, they can tell you if you've got some and floating around, but they can't tell you how many. Yeah. I mean, what I've had some advice from different people is to look at the FAMACHA scores. And when you start seeing FAMACHA scores drop or you see, you know, an average that's, you know, below, um, you know, below a two, but you, know, you start looking at threes. Yeah, but even but every then, time it takes, you've got more time than I do, Caleb, then because I don't <laughs> want to run my ute or my lambs through the chute yeah. on Sunday afternoon so I can do a Pamacha score. Yeah. And plus, every time you run through the chute, they're losing a pound. I mean, and yep. Caleb don't have a chute yet, so. <laughs> Oh, well, maybe they won't lose a pound then. <laughs> <laughs> no, they probably lose more than a pound me chasing around trying to catch them. Like, Yikes! <laughs> it's probably a few pounds. I don't know who loses more, them or me, but... <laughs> That's why you're so thin, so... <laughs> you can tell I don't make anymore, so... Yeah. One thing to remember on the fecal egg count, it's, again, it's in percentage. Negative 100 is the best. You can't be better than a negative 100. <laughs> But you can be positive a thousand, so <laughs> you can um, you can be pretty. It can be a pretty wide range, but um, it's um, you know again that's a question of how good is good enough. Uh, I'm happy negative fifty, I think negative sixty, because I'm selecting for other things. I mean, we've got a couple breeders in the breed. And the Catan breed, I mean, they're getting generation, they're up to two or three generations stacked now at negative 99 or negative 100. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty impressive. That's serious okay. stuff. So a, a, a question about that kind of getting down a little bit, maybe into the weeds a little but you mentioned negative 100 is the best. Um, so that's, that's always been a, a question for me because if you look in the database, there's a few animals that are like negative 101. I've got, I think, two ewes that I bought this year that are like negative 100 point something. Um, they're slightly over. So what is uh, what does that mean? That they're they're killing other sheep's parasites at that point? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's probable that because um, in any EBV, the um, um, Oh, this is embarrassing. 
I want to say co coefficient. That's not right. The um, the breeding. Um, help me out, Caleb. What's heritability? The, the hair. Thank you. The heritability for any trait is figured into the EBV. Um, so you don't have, so it's already calculated and you don't have to worry about it. You can just look at the EBV. Um, it's probable that the heritability that's used in the system is a little bit high. Mm. We're probably over estimating the heritability of the people they count. It's gotcha. not much, but that's how you can come up with a one or one. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It's um and it's and this again goes way beyond my ability to understand statistics, but there's a sire model and there's a progeny model. And the last time a graduate student worked on this, um, there weren't enough lambs to have a high confidence level in using the progeny model. So they used the sire model. Mm. And um, again, there's not a big difference in the heritability between the two models. It's just a matter of trying to use the statistics that fit the population the best and so i it's possible that it's slightly overstated but yeah the sense. other thing i think that's important is that and this and really i'm kind of glad you brought this up because it, it this can apply to any trait um the math isn't like a hundred percent perfect. Um, anytime you do research, there are certain assumptions made. Um, but like in this, on the people aid count, even if we used, even if we paid a graduate student to rerun the heritability and we changed it so we can't have a 101, we probably will not change the ranking. So the mm -hmm. best you is still the best you. Yeah. The best RAM is still the best RAM. So I don't, we have to be careful. It's, it's again, it kind of goes back to, you know, Dr. Nodder figured out that, yeah, we could maybe reprogram the system for weaning weight um, based upon whether it was a fast growing contemporary group or a slow growing contemporary group it wasn't really going to make any difference mm -hmm. from a practical standpoint. Um, and it was going to cost a lot of money to do that. And since we don't own the software anymore, um, I'm not too sure Australia was going to do it anyway. So yeah. um, well, it, make, it makes sense too, because we're not trying to find the raw data. We're finding out which ones are the best ones. If we want to find out which ones have the raw data, we're not going to use the EBVs to predict that. We'll just go grab a scale and weigh them. So that's um, right makes sense to to just stick with the the ranking and use it as a like those the control knobs on a stereo and and use it to yeah if people don't understand they need to watch um, you can get on youtube and um search for um 11 is more than 10 and the movie was um spinal tap and i my wife Every time I watch that clip, I just, tears are rolling down my eye. I think it's so funny. And my wife has watched it, and she just thinks it's the stupidest clip that she's ever seen. <laughs> so, but anyway, yeah, if, if you did, yeah, yeah, you just, <laughs> 11 is not necessarily more than 10, and it's not necessarily, and it certainly isn't better. So, <laughs> But the other thing, again, maybe dropping down just a little bit into the weeds here on fecal aid count. Uh, Dr. Scott Baldridge at uh, West Virginia uh, has done some research uh, on some sheep that were raised by uh, Lee Wright at the Glade Springs uh, Virginia Tech uh, Experiment Station um, that it shows that lambs or any animal but in this case, specifically lambs that have 
a better, which means a smaller number, okay, more negative, getting closer to 100, that's better for this trait. Um, the better animals have a stronger immune system against any disease. Um, not, um, not proven yet, but uh, the preliminary results actually, I, and give credit to um, the Katahdin Association, KHSI helped fund that research. Um, KHSI gave Dr. Baldridge some seed money um, to do the uh, preliminary uh, study. Uh, it helped pay for uh, laboratory supplies for a grad student that was doing a lot of um, serum blood sampling um, on, I don't know, however you figure out what different diseases you have. But anyway, um, so because Katahdin's helped provide some seed money now, um, the last I heard um, is that he was applying for some pretty large grants to study this in a lot more detail. And so um, exciting stuff. Uh, if this comes, sure. if, you know, if this is proven um, to be a real, if they can put, a, you know, and if they can figure out how much of a difference it makes, um, my gosh, it, again, Katahdin's will lead the way. I mean, it's every other breed will start chasing this trait, whether parasite resistance is important or not. If we can judge uh, overall immune response to any disease, um, this will be huge. Um, open up a fecal egg count lab because it's coming. Well, Texas A&M have actually. Yeah. Uh, well, and you know, part of the problem is, I mean, we, I, let me give a shout out to a couple of researchers that have helped Katahdin's a lot and they're retiring. Uh, Dr. Jim Miller um, down at Louisiana State and yeah. Dr. Ann Zajac at uh, Virginia Tech. They have, mm -hmm. their labs have done tens of thousands, maybe approaching 100,000 fecal egg counts for Katahdin's. Um, and, and at a really discounted price. A reduced fee, yeah. Uh, yeah, a crazy reduced fee, and those two need, actually, Robert, they probably ought to be invited to an expo and given an honorary membership or something, because, um, man, they have given a lot of time and money to the Katahdin Association, you know, Katahdin breeders for this, this one trait, and, and they're both retiring, and so um, I know... Um, we had one breeder that looked into setting up her own lab. Um, she had a daughter because of COVID this year was going to be home all summer and found out that you actually have to be a vet or supervised by a vet veterinarian to actually count people, eight counts for somebody and charge for it. You can count for yourself, but you can't charge for, you can't charge anybody for it unless you're a veterinarian. So that kind of shot that down. But um, Virginia, or, uh, yeah, Texas A&M's opening lab. I'm not too sure. Uh, how they're pricing it, everything, but um, Dr. Reed Redden is doing a lot of great things down at San Angelo. Um, uh, they're, they're opening up a wool lab, uh, probably a fecal egg count lab, and so some exciting stuff down there. Um, let's jump to indexes real briefly, um, and <coughs> the um, the Katahdin index is a maternal index. Um, NSIP also calculates a couple other indexes. Um, there's a Western Range index. Um, there's a Carcass Plus. Um, the, there's two, but there's two maternal indexes. One is called the maternal index um, that fits most breeds. It's the one the polypays use. And then the Katahdins have their own maternal index. We made a mistake 10 years ago and we called it the hair index. <laughs> and I don't know why, you would think that the chairman of NSIP could change that. And <laughs> it is like, it's just not a high priority item, but it drives me nuts because people think it's about the hair quality. It yeah. has nothing to do with hair coat. It's a maternal index for hair sheep. 
And um, I think Jim Morgan and I need to be slapped for coming up with that because I think I was involved with naming it. So <laughs> I have to take some of the blame, but I wish we could change it. But um, it's a maternal index that takes into account um, actually both the polypay, the maternal index that the polypays use and the maternal index that the Katahdin's use take into account four traits. Um, weaning weight, maternal weaning weight, or again, milk, um, number of lambs born and number of lambs weaned. It's driven by number of lambs weaned. The reason the polypays and the Katahdin's have different indexes is because there was a doctorate student that was working under um, Dr. Nodder that needed a research project and he said figure out if Katahdin's are enough different from polypays that they need their own index and she did basically her thesis on this and there was a difference. <laughs> so um, the weighting, even though the EBVs that are used are the same, the weighting factors for each EBV in the index is different. Um, but in both, both of them, uh, number of lambs weaned drives the, the index. Um, it roughly correlates to pounds of lamb weaned per U that lambs. In a perfect world, we would like it to be pounds of lamb weaned per you bread. But mm -hmm. we can get into this a little bit later on some of these new traits. It would take a level of record keeping that most people don't want to uh, keep. It, it's it would be it would be really hard. It's almost a research setting type of level of record keeping to do that. So we again we're probably like at 95% of what perfect would be, um, but it's it's a very practical index to measure pounds of lamb weaned per you lambing, and um, so especially for the guys selling light lambs just select. If you don't want to select on anything else, just select on the, the, the maternal index for hair sheep. And you're going to maximize the number of lambs, the number of pounds of lambs that you're winging. So now, here, this is a personal opinion. I can't prove it, but I've seen it more than once. If you only select on the index, over several generations, your the size of your the EBV for the 60-day weights. In other words, your weaning weight EBVs will start dropping. Your use will become smaller, but you'll be weaning enough additional lambs that you'll still be making more money. So that is hard to swallow for people and hard to show and improve that's I a know. tough one so what i encourage people to do and again this kind of gets into selection theory here maybe you should select on the index you know if if they walk well um they're pretty if they're pretty whatever select the ram with the highest index with a weaning weight above the 60th percentile or the 40th percentile. So just don't let the weaning weight EBV drop down to the 10 percentile, mm -hmm. you know, the bottom percentile. Um, and I think that would be a pretty good way of Although, let me, let me say this too. If you're a grass-based system and you're worried about the cost of maintenance energy from the time you wean until the time you lamb, which is, what, 10 
nine or 10 months of the year, the U is just needing maintenance energy. Mm -hmm. You want small U's. If you're selling 60 or 70 pound lambs into the ethnic market, a 200 pound U is useless. It's, it's total, it's costing you more money to maintain it than you're going to make by selling a lamb that weans five days soon. Because what that lamb's going to eat in those five days, because it's a slower growing lamb, is nothing compared to what that you ate to maintain her extra 50 pounds over a nine month period of time. And that's something most people don't do the math on. <laughs> right. it, it, it's, it's not necessarily, it's time consuming math because it, it but it's easy. It's just simple subtraction and addition and multiplication. I mean, it's, it, you don't have to have an algebra degree to, to figure it out. But I mean, intuitively, your maintenance energy costs, especially if you're only lambing once a year, is huge. The, the difference between a 150-pound U and a 200-pound U is huge. Mm -hmm. And no one takes that into account. If you look at the cattle industry, Again, going back to cattle, um, there's there's a definite trend in the cattle industry to shrink the size of these cows. They're figuring out that they're they're going broke trying to chase weaning weights. And so, you know, the packers want the big calves because they get more pounds of meat per shackle. Mm -hmm. But for the cow calf producer you know, they have to cut their costs. And the way you cut your costs is you, you get smaller cows, you run more cows per acre, you wean more calves per acre or per hundred acres or however you want to count it. But, you know, you need to figure profit per acre and, and not per calf. Yeah. And, and it's kind of the same way in the, in the sheep industry, especially for the commercial guys. Um, I mean, it's one thing if, I'll be careful here because I want to keep everybody happy. Um, I don't want to disparage anybody, but if your business model is selling grams because of your purple ribbons, congratulations, you've got excellent management. Your management is better than mine because I can't win purple ribbons. Um, but, and so if you're, if, if that's your business model is selling to other show flocks then you probably want tall lanky sheep because that's what the judges want and you're not worried about cost of production if you're running 300 ewes on a hundred acre pasture um cost of production is really important and you probably don't want tall animals you don't want 200 pound ewes you want 150 also, if you're selling into the light land market, 140 or 130 pound use might be. Up. If you're selling to Superior, yeah, maybe you need 160 pound, you know, or into the restaurant trade. If you know, if you're if you're selling at farmers markets, you're going, you need to be, you know, harvesting lambs at 120 to 140 pounds, and so you're going to have to have a slightly bigger you, but. Um, if you're only lambing once a year, um, it's your your maintenance. The cost of maintenance is is a big cost that's hard to recover as the ewes get bigger. Yeah, one of the the comments that I hear frequently from people because I'm out here in Idaho, uh, which is surrounded by uh, lots of lots of breeders that select for big sheep, um, and so you know one of the things that I hear a lot is well. I understand the efficiency of the U side of things. And I understand that argument, but I need my lambs to have the potential to finish out um, to a larger weight. Um, my thought has always been that the Katahdin breed really specializes in the maternal side of things. Um, it's not a, a terminal breed. We'll never have sheep that grow as fast as a Suffolk or get as large. So it, to me, in my mind, it makes more sense to utilize crossbreeding um, to be the most effective to reach those higher weights while still maintaining efficiency. Is that a, a viable business model, do you think? And 
what breeds have you seen, if it is, that, that work pretty well for Katahdin breeders to cross with? We leave, in the sheep industry, we leave a lot of money on the table by not crossbreeding uh, in our commercial flocks. Um, we need purebred flocks um, so we can cross two purebred breeds together and get that hybrid vigor, the heterosis that comes by crossing two unrelated animals. Um, so, um, I, yeah, I think, yeah, if you want, you know, unless you're raising fine wool, um, I, I have a hard time understanding why I would pay somebody more than the wool is worth to clip it. Mm -hmm. And so I, that's one of the reasons I think hair sheep are increasing in popularity so fast. Um, I mean, they've taken over Texas, they've taken over the Eastern United States, um, the Pacific coast, the, you know, the mountains, you know, the mountain west is, is still where uh, there's a lot of wool uh, breeds. And, yep. and again, they can raise fine and quality wool out there if that's what they choose to do. <laughs> if they're not chasing fine wool, then I think even well, we may see a shift in them shifting to hair sheep. Um, and so I think, uh, so you want to crossbred youth flock too, then. So you want a, you know, a Katahdin Dorper, uh, Katahdin um, Easy Care. I mean, um, you, you, you know, I, we, there's not a lot of St. Croix. St. Croix can be very parasite resistant. Um, but if we could come, I, I think it's a question we, that needs research, um, Caleb, that we need to find two hair breeds um, to cross to get hybrid vigor in the youth flock and then cross them with a terminal sire. I don't have a problem. I, I mean, I've seen um, the suffix. Uh, you know, they're probably, especially if you're selling um, to to a major packer, um, they're they're extreme enough on the big side that you could take a a Katahdin, um, you breed it to a Suffolk ram and and still have an acceptable uh, carcass at the packing plant. They're not going to like the pelt, but right now pelts are a negative value to the packer, or at least they were earlier. Uh, I'm assuming yep. they're not more anything more in break even right now. So, yep. um, so the the pelt is an issue in these big packing plants because that sometimes they actually make money, um, and if they don't, if they can't sell the pelt, then it's a negative value because they have to dispose of it. Mm -hmm. Um. Um. If you're not selling to a major packer, then I, you know, I've seen Texels crossed on a lot of Katahdins here in the Midwest. And that's a, that's a great lamb for um, selling freezer lambs for. If you're not trying to push them to 140, they'll get to 120 without any trouble. Uh, if you're selling light lambs, uh, it, it's a, you know, you're selling a, a lamb there that's got, a, you know, some muscle on the bone. And it, it's very acceptable to the ethnic market. So, um, yeah, there's, there's quite a few options for crossbreeding and we need to figure more of that out because it, it's a, it would be a huge economic benefit for commercial breeders to come up with a good crossbreeding program. Yeah, that's so great. At, at what point will we be able to um, know through NSIP you know, if I wanted to cross to a Texel or a Suffolk or a, you know, Romanov or whatever, what what that breed impact is on the lamb? There is the beginning of some research projects out at USDA Mark that's looking at at that Robert. I don't know how long it's going to take, and I don't know exactly their research protocol. Um, to know, I know Katahdins are in the mix, so I don't know if Katahdins are being compared or being crossed with every breed. Um, 
I also understand that the sheep experiment station in Idaho is buying a flock of cotagons. Yes, sir. And, <laughs> and I understand that Dr. Taylor's intent is to see how big he can get them. I don't, <laughs> that's a rumor. I don't know if that's true. I, I mean, I, to some extent, I kind of hope it's not, but yeah, I understand, like you said, Caleb, you know, out West, I mean, yeah. I've always been told one of the reasons they don't like dorkers out west is because they're too short to the ground. They can't step over the rocks. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was interesting. I had a chance to talk to Dr. Taylor for a little bit about the program and it's pretty exciting what they're going to be doing um, with their program. And I, I think they're trying to keep a, a larger framed animal. I don't think it's necessarily their intent to to push as large as they okay. can get it, but more so to see how they how they operate in a range environment. But they are trying to maintain a larger framed animal to compete with the the larger framed bull sheep out now here. Now, are they going to be doing any crossing as well, or do you know? Um, from what I understand, they're planning on on pulling lambs at birth and grafting them onto range use, and then okay. seeing how those lambs behave on the range. So removing the the uh, instinct or just removing the, the nurturing side um, and seeing, you know, any training from the Catanus and just going off of instinct to see if they can range um, with the wool breeds and if they operate on the range just fine or if they run off by themselves or how that works in a range flock with the herder out there. So, so and just for a plug, uh, I think the Pacific no, the Rocky uh, Mountain. Yes, the Rocky Mountain Club is doing a tour in June. Correct. Yes, that is correct. Oh, good. So, anybody is welcome to attend. You don't have to be a member to attend, but you might as well sign up while you're at it. <laughs> if Lynn can get his plane and come pick me up, I'd go. <laughs> you know, that's a long gonna... flight. <laughs> yeah, the problem is, yeah, I that I've actually looked, not necessarily to fly to the experiment station, but uh, to fly up into that area. Mm -hmm. My plan would get pretty close, but I'm not instrument rated. So um, clouds are a problem. So I just need if to get- If clouds are a problem, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I can fly above them and I can fly below them. I can't fly through them. Mm. And um, so- I'm not riding with you then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. The plane's so to, capable. I'm just not licensed to do it. So, but yeah. um, so to go back up to more than yeah. five thousand foot level, maybe up in yeah. the clouds a little bit. <laughs> um, so one of the questions and one of the concerns we hear a lot from people, and and you know, there's been discussions amongst the NSIP breeders um, in the past about the index and just complaints that it doesn't push the traits that they're looking for, or whatever, and doesn't factor in parasite resistance. Um, which again, it's just a pounds of lamb wean per you essentially. So it's essentially another trait um, to use, but it's a combined trait. There's also the self-replacing carcass index, which factors in fecal egg counts a little bit and also factors in some scanning. Since you're one of the few breeders that does all of the above, um, how do you, do you use the self-replacing carcass and how does it compare to your criteria? Um, yeah. And the disclaimer here is, is that you can see a self-replacing carcass index for any animal because it's calculated. Mm -hmm. It's not accurate if, unless the animal is from a, from a flock that's scanning and collecting people accounts. Okay. So, um, so that's a disclaimer. I, I really like the index. Um, it's weighted for for me personally, it's weighted a little heavy on growth. Uh, I think it would push mature weights too much for me. Um, and so what I do, I just take the self-replacing carcass index. I subtract off the Hoggett EBV, and then I rank my use based upon that. Real simple, because um, I'm pretty simple-minded. <laughs> uh, and so I... I haven't found much wrong with that index. And, and sometimes it's like, well, why is this animal, you know, I would think this animal would be higher or lower or whatever. And you start going through all the EBVs that's in that index. 
and probably because I guess I'm probably looking at the maternal traits maybe first and it's like mm -hmm. man that's really a good you maternally where what's the problem where's the hole and it's either she's got a positive fecal egg count number which is bad or a negative eye muscle number which is bad <laughs> and and that the index catches it so, so what's the chances we can get that index added to the search page? Um, I would not think it would be that hard. Actually, I thought it, no, it's, it may not be on the search, but it's on the uh, percentile report, isn't it? It's on a percentile report, but it's not on the um, individual animals uh, search. You know, when you do an NSIP search, we lost Caleb, I guess. Um, oh, he's back. Um, I doubt it's that hard, Robert, but that's probably not a high priority item right now. It probably should be for a couple of breeds, though. Yeah. Yeah, interestingly enough, I think that data is there um, because if you look at the tool that Etienne's developed, he's got it when he puts together the breeding value calculations for pedigree EBVs, it has one for self-replacing carcass index. If you're, um, so if, or if you're an NSIP breed, if you're an NSIP member and you're getting the reports back from um, Sheep Genetics in Australia, um, mm -hmm. it's index underscore four. Yep. And so, yeah, it's, it's calculated for every animal. Again, the caution <laughs> is, is make sure you're looking at it on animals that also have um, highly, you know, good accuracies on fecal egg counts and um, eye muscle depth. Otherwise, it's going to skew and not be an accurate index. Yeah. So a, a good plug to uh, start collecting fecal egg <laughs> counts and scanning if you want to use that index, I guess. <laughs> yeah yeah i guess um that would be a plug but again those are too expensive <laughs> yep <laughs> too expensive uh, traits to to measure but. for sure yeah so yeah i guess that okay going down through our list here um yeah so that's an index caleb that i do use i like it um um but again you can okay so one of the things i've done with okay so i get all the all this information back and i'm making my breeding groups you you want to breed the best to the best for the most part okay there, there's always exceptions to this but then how do you define best and for every producer it's going to be different and maybe even within my flock um i tend to maybe give half of my top ranking uh, self-replacing carcass index used to, no, I said that wrong. Let's say if I'm going to give, if I'm going to turn 30 ewes out with a ram, the ram that has the highest self-replacing carcass index, I'm going to give him about the top, my top 15 ewes based upon that index. And then I'm going to take, um, and, and so you got to prioritize it. So this is just an example. Mm -hmm. um, so then I'm going to say, well, I, I'm, my fecal egg count's still weak. I need to work on that. So I'm going to take, the, the next thing I'm going to work on is I'm going to take the ram with the best fecal egg count number and breed and give him the 15 ewes that have the best fecal egg count number. And I'm going to go through until I've got 15 U's assigned to each RAM for whatever reason I'm assigning it. And then I'm just, and then because I also don't, I want to, you know, have some randomness to my mm -hmm. uh, breeding groups. The rest I just assign A, B, C, D. And I just Ram, you know, one, two, three, four. Ram one gets number one. Ram two gets the number two. You know, and then it just repeats. 
And so I've got some randomness to my breeding groups. And, but I, I'm also breeding a high portion of my best for any one trait to my best gram for that trait, if that's a trait I'm selecting for. Um, and again, there's, there's as many different theories on how to um, divide up breeding groups as there are breeders. And, and that's fine. I'm not saying I'm right. That's just the way I'm doing it right now. Um, I think if I would take my top 30 ewes for the self-replacing carcass and breed it for the best ram for self-replacing carcass, there's a slight chance I could start skewing the data, I think. Um, mm -hmm. The system is very robust. Um, and the more sheep that I sell to other breeders involved with NSIP, the more robust it becomes for me. Um, so there's less of an ability for me to skew data. Um, but I think if we only bred best to best 100%, there's a risk that we could, we could skew the data maybe a little bit. So I, I'm always cautious of that. I always want to make sure I, a few of my worst views are bred to my best RAM just to keep everything honest. Yeah, that's a topic that uh, that I hear is, do you breed your best, you know, whatever trait ram to your worst use? Are you better off to bring your bottom up or keep pushing the top out? Personally, I push the top out and pull the bottom. We don't call mm -hmm. them that. I, yep. I probably don't. I, I'm calling a lot now. I, you know, it, <laughs> There's a saying, I, I, I don't know if anyone's heard it, but me, if you pound your head against the wall long enough, your ears will pop, finally pop out so you can hear. And, uh, <laughs> you know, at some point, at some point, Dr. Dan Markle and Dr. Ron Lewis screamed at me enough that I finally heard them. And um, I'm just calling the heck out of the body. I, I'm... Um, all right, so that, that you know, brings up times a, I've had broken focus on my breeding, um, and that's it was before my ears popped out, and I heard Dr. Mork on Dr. Lewis, and just just cold bottom and save more ewes. Okay, so I got a question on that topic too. Uh, I'm I'm kind of bouncing around, but um, I, I've I've had somebody mention to me that I'm flipping my flock too fast for. It, how is that possible? Well, your data is not probably as accurate. Yeah, accuracy is part of it. And we don't have a trait for longevity. And so that's something you just have to watch. And yeah. if you never let a you get to eight years old, you don't know if her udder is going to fall apart or not. I mean, <laughs> who cares if I'm not getting there? Yeah. Well, well but, for the commercial guys. But for the commercial I mean, guy, yeah, that's exactly right. right, Caleb. I mean, the commercial guy doesn't want, was this a cattle number I saw or a sheep number? I, I think it was a cattle number, but it would probably pretty, pretty, be pretty similar for sheep. Um, the development cost of a heifer is so high that it had the heifer has to give you five calves before she breaks even. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. So, so if, it's if probably similar in sheep. Yeah, but if we don't track longevity, how do we know? Well, I mean, okay, take someone like Karen Kanegi. She has a whole flock of eight-year-old plus you, some 12-year-old. Well, we know yeah. that at least some of her ewes can hold their udders together for 12 years. Yeah. I've got a you from her that's 10 years old and you wouldn't know it. <laughs> She's still producing. Yeah. And so if we flip too, I mean, yeah. So flipping too fast, you're going to lose some accuracy, especially on the maternal traits because it takes so long. But if we talk about genomics in a little bit, that's going to solve that. Right. I mean, but, but then the longevity dealer, I mean, I think we have, yeah, the commercial guys want use, you know, they're, they're making a lot of money on use or weaning twins at eight, 
and nine years of age, or let's not say years, but let's just say litters. I mean, on their eighth, ninth, and tenth litter, whether they're having two in every three years or one a year, that's where they're making that they're making money on those ewes. So if you flip too fast, you won't figure that out. Well, but I, I'm, but the benefit I'm, is is your genetics for everything that we can measure is going to be way above someone that's flipping at ten years. Yeah, that that my goal is to increase my base, and then and then go from there. Yeah, generation interval, I think, in purebred flocks needs to be shortened. But we have to be careful that we're still selling quality females to the commercial guys. So one way, I guess, that you could accomplish that is that your top um, your top 10% of your use is always going to be some of your top use. Um, so you select those, but you're always calling a percentage of your your lower end ewes that aren't producing anyways but you're not culling all your ewes replacing them every four years or whatever you're keeping back some of your best ones even if they're not your best ones now what what was your best ones four years ago um just keeping some around for longevity or or is it just i mean it's a, it's a tough battle because you have accuracy to deal with you have longevity to, to factor in and then you also have your rate of improvement it is always hard to find a spot to stop our conversations. Uh, we, we're getting into it and, and it starts getting deep and next thing you know, you're running out of time. We don't want to get these uh, too long, so we try to stay under an hour best we can. So it uh, looks like that is a place for us to stop on this episode. So uh, stay tuned. We will continue on with our next episode with Lynn and, and discussing NSIP and how you can apply it to your flock. So. Stick, uh, stay tuned and uh, look forward to listening to the next one. Thanks for listening to the Sheep Things podcast. Stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates. We want your feedback, so you can email us at podcast at sheepthings.com for suggestions or comments. Thank you and see you later.